It's really good to be with you here this morning on Palm Sunday. And um, I have to start off by saying it nearly didn't happen. Um, I got up yesterday morning and uh, went through my normal routine of going into the bathroom, having a shower, and I was busy shaving. And I nicked a mole right underneath my nose. And I just couldn't stop this thing bleeding. It, it took me about half an hour there. I've got one of those, like, what do you call them? Those little white sticks you run under the tap and put it on, and it stings a little. Anyway, all was good all through the day. And um, I was going to bed, and uh, I blew my nose. I've got a little bit of a cold at the moment. And I blew my nose, and this thing started to bleed again. And I couldn't stop it bleeding at all. So I had to go downstairs, 11 o'clock at night, and I had to get a Band-Aid and stick it right across my nose here. Well, my poor wife, she nearly lost it because I looked hilarious. And uh, like any typical self-respecting guy, I still looked in the mirror before I went to bed and went, looking good, here we go. Anyway, (laughs) so um, men are so different to women, aren't they? But uh, (laughs) thank you, Sarah, for leading us in worship and uh, those beautiful songs and for reading that passage in John chapter 12 as well. If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to that passage. We're going to be spending quite a bit of time in the book of John this morning, John chapter 12. The Gospel of John is a really special gospel. And uh, if you're not into studying the scriptures, if you don't read your Bible much, I would encourage you to read this book. If there was one book in the Bible that would serve you well, it would be this one book. The, the whole purpose of the book is stated right at the end. In John chapter 20, John the Apostle, uh, the, the friend of Jesus, he says this, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's the whole purpose of John writing this book, that, that we would have life, life in his name. And everything in this book is structured around sevens. There's seven miracles. And each one of those miracles is, is, is written there to prove the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the King of kings, that he is the Lord of lords, that he is supreme, and that we can have life in his name. There's the the water into wine, the feeding of the 5,000. There's when he calms the the sea. He shows his power over the natural elements. He, He heals the sick. And he raises Lazarus from the dead, just proving that he has uh, uh, power over the physical things we go through and even death himself. We have the seven I am's. I am the door. I am the light. I am the good shepherd. All of these themes that are in this book. And so I would encourage you to read it. It's a really important book. Palm Sunday, it's a, it's a very special day in the Christian calendar, isn't it? And I I want you to picture in your mind for a moment being in a large crowd. I'm sure all of you have been in a large crowd. Think of maybe a rock concert you've been to or a premiere night for a a new movie at the theatre. Or maybe you've been to the theatre yourself to see one of those great shows in London or, or, or down even in Vancouver. I just want you to imagine being in a large crowd. For me, it's a, it's a sporting event. One of the one of the highlights of uh, growing up as a youngster in Wales with uh, my parents was my dad was a, a real soccer fanatic. He loved football, soccer. And uh, our local team was called Cardiff City. And supporting Cardiff City was a little like supporting the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, sometimes they were good, most times they weren't good. You know, so uh, uh, most Saturdays when we went there, it would be maybe three or 4,000 people watching 
the games because they weren't good at that time. Well, one year, it was 1977, late 70s, we had a really good cup run, okay? And Cardiff drew Tottenham Hotspur, and I think it was about the third or the fourth round of the cup. Now, Tottenham Hotspur are a really big English soccer side. They're called Spurs. Now, let me just, a little rabbit trail here. If you really want to get under Glenn's skin, okay, tell him that you've heard how great Tottenham are. And if you really want to bug him, tell him that you think Liverpool are the greatest team, and it'll be like, <laughs> just, just throw that out there and see what happens. Anyway, Cardiff City, we drew Tottenham, and my dad and I, we went down. There was 35,000 people there. The ground was packed, and we won, 1-0. I'll never forget it. Peter Sayer, this guy, he's got a great goal. We beat the mighty Spurs. There's 35,000 delinquent Welshmen singing, and, oh, Cardiff City, they're the greatest team in the league, and all this sort of rubbish, which they weren't, but we believed it. Anyway, we were in that crowd coming out, and uh, you, you sort of, you know what it's like if you've been to any sporting events. You come down, and you come into the tunnel, and you're walking out. My dad had hold of me, and uh, we're walking along, and all of a sudden, I hear my dad, he goes, oh, oh, my shoe, my shoe. Somebody must have stood on the back of his heel, and he lost his shoe. So we had to sort of drag, drag me over to the side of this ground while all of these fans walked in. We were ages there waiting for the, the crowds to disperse. But... Just imagine yourself in a crowd like that. Wherever the crowd goes, you have to go with it, don't you? If they're going left, you're going left. and You've got to figure your way out uh, later on. And that's how, what, what it would have been like for that crowd, that, that Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of the young donkey. Sarah's already read the passage, but I'm just going to read a few more verses there. Chapter 12, chapter 12 verses 12 to 15. I'm just going to read that again. The next day... The great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a colt. The crowds had gathered in Jerusalem that day to celebrate the Feast of Passover. There was um, three feasts during the Jewish calendar year that it was mandatory for particularly the Jewish males to come up to uh, Jerusalem for. That was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. These were the three compulsory feasts where people would come to the city. And Passover, it was a very special Jewish feast. It was the time when the people would remember how God brought them out of slavery in Egypt in a mighty, miraculous way. Do you remember, they had to take a lamb, and the lamb had to be without spot or blemish, and they were to kill the lamb, and they were to place some of the blood on the doorposts of their home, and then they were to take the the rest of the lamb, and they were to roast it, essentially, and have a, a roast meal, lamb, and it was served with unleavened bread. And all of these things are symbolic, very symbolic to the Jews, with with bitter herbs, and the bitter herbs would remind them of the bitterness of slavery. And so this was a really important Jewish feast for them. And you remember that night in Egypt, the angel of death came, and if the blood wasn't on the doorpost and the head of the door, the firstborn would die. But if the blood was there, the angel would pass over, because death had already come to that home. And so this was a very important Jewish feast. It was one of the most important. 
And as Sarah has reminded us there, the city would have been full. It would be like sort of Kelowna when we've got one of those special events on. Some commentators say that there might have been an additional 100 to 200,000 people packed into that city during the feast of Passover. News was spreading fast. This man, Jesus, who had raised Lazarus from the dead, he was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, this story is recorded in all the Gospels, and when you piece all the information together from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can figure out that a large crowd would have been following Jesus from Bethany. He'd been at the house of Lazarus, his friend, who he'd raised from the dead. But there was also a large crowd that was surging out from the city of Jerusalem who had heard that he was on his way. And when these two crowds met, they greeted him like a, a mighty king returning from a victorious battle. Why did the crowd, crowds come to meet him? What were they thinking about him? Well, there were those there amongst the crowds who were simply sign seekers. That's what verse 18 tells us that we read earlier. They had heard how Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and they were curious. They were caught up in the sensation of this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there were also those in the crowd as well who were greeting Jesus as the Messiah, God's anointed one, the Christ. If we look at the passage, it says this in verse 13. Look at verse 13. It says, They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now the word Hosanna in the Hebrew, it literally means, save now, we pray you. Save now, we pray you. And so the shout of the cloud literally was, as they were waving those palm branches, they were literally saying this, God save the King. God save the King. Now these words that they chanted were from Psalm 116. Psalm 113 to 118 were a group of praise psalms that were central to the Passover festival. And so they would be singing these songs as part of the Passover celebration anyway, but they were singing them as songs of praise and thanksgiving and celebration to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the people waved the palm branches and shouted these words, they were looking at Jesus as God's anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would come and conquer and deliver the people. The one who would sound the trumpet and call the Jewish people to arms and free them from the Roman cruelty and give them their land back and give them rest and peace. But Jesus hadn't come to conquer the Romans. He was on a different mission. And the crowds totally missed the point as to why he had come. And so Jesus came riding on a colt, a foal, a young donkey. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem like this, he was making a very deliberate claim to be the Messiah. This was to fulfill what, what had been written by the prophet Zechariah. It says in chapter 9 of Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus was making a direct claim to be the Messiah, the Christ, 
God's anointed one. Now there is a very special picture in the way he rode into Jerusalem that day. In our Western culture, we tend to think of a donkey as a stupid, humble, despised animal. In fact, I looked up in the Oxford English Dictionary, and after it gives the definition of what a donkey is, sort of four-legged creature, it goes on to say this, stupid and inept person. I found that quite funny, actually. But we do, we say that, don't we? You stupid donkey. And uh, um, so we've probably got Shrek to thank for that, haven't we? But However, in the Middle East at that time, it was a noble animal. Think, think like a Cadillac. Now, in the Bible, it talks about, um, uh, in, in the book of Judges, it talks about this judge called Jaya. And he had 30 sons. And apparently, they rode around on, on donkeys. You, you can just imagine these 30 guys on the backs of these donkeys kind of bobbing up and down. In Britain, when we go to the beach, um, like... <laughs> Let's just set the scene here a minute. In, in Southern California, Dawn, when you go to the beach, you lie in the sun because there's the expectation of sun, right? In, in Britain, there is the rumor that the sun exists. And, uh, uh, and so we have to invent other things. So when you go to the, the beach in Britain, you, you go for a donkey ride. And if you've ever been on one of these creatures, they, if you don't know what you're doing, you just bounce up and down as they run down the beaches. It's really, really funny. So I've just got this mental picture of that, actually, of Jer and all of these 30 judges riding on these donkeys. But that's, that's the impression we get in our culture when we think about that. But William Barclay, he's a commentator. He says this, A king came riding upon a horse when he was bent on war. He came riding upon a donkey when he was coming in peace. And so Jesus was not the warrior figure that the crowd was dreaming about. Rather, he was the prince of peace. No one realized what was happening at the time, not even the disciples. For verse 16 says, At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. You see, everyone was caught up with the hysteria of the crowd. They were looking for the Messiah of their dreams and not for the one God had sent. And so we see how fickle a crowd can be. And maybe that's been you at a sporting event where you're cheering your side when they're winning and then you're booing them when they give up a couple of goals and they're losing, right? We can be so fickle in a crowd. And we see that in this story here because the, the crowd that said sang Hosanna, God save the king, was in less than a week shouting, away with him, we will not have this man to reign over us. And it's easier to shout in a parade than to stand at a cross. And so outward praise is no sign of inward conversion. That could be you here today. Maybe you come and you enjoy the music. You really enjoy the community of God's people, the benefits that church offers. But if you ever bowed the knee to Jesus. Now when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he went up into the temple area. And as we carry on through verses 20 and 22 there, we see that there were some Gentiles that had come up to Passover too. Now the Gentiles couldn't get to where Jesus was. They had their own court and they couldn't get to the inner court where only the the purified Jewish males were allowed to go under that dispensation of law there. And there was a special court for them and they wanted to see Jesus. And so they found Philip and Philip found Andrew 
And Philip and Andrew, these two disciples of Jesus, they took these Gentiles to see Jesus. And when Jesus came to them, he said something very profound. Look at verse 23, John chapter 12, verse 23. He says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. The hour has come. Some people have called this gospel the gospel of the hour. For seven times in this book, the the phrase, the hour, is mentioned. Sometimes it's said in the negative, his hour has not yet come. And then sometimes in the positive, the hour is come. And the word literally means any time or period, especially a season. What was this hour? What hour is he referring to? I calculated that in... 6,000 years of recorded human history, there's been approximately 52 and a half million hours. And I know you're thinking to yourself, Lyndon, get a life, but I'm a numbers guy, okay? I'm a numbers guy. I just, I just want you to think about this just for a second. In all those hours of history, approximately 52 and a half million of recorded history, great events have taken place. Think of some of the mighty battles that have been won. Think about some of the great speeches that have been made. Maybe think about some of the great sporting trophies that have been won. But as far as God is concerned, there is one grand glorious hour that stands above them all. What is that hour? Perhaps you don't even know that that hour has come. Perhaps you are living your life completely unaware that the greatest hour in human history has come. What is that hour? It's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. For he goes on to say this in verses 24 to 28, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so Jesus directs their thoughts to the cross. The whole purpose of him leaving the splendor of heaven and coming to this earth was to go to the cross. And that is why early on in his ministry at the marriage of the Cana in Galilee, do you remember, they ran out of wine. His, his, his mother came to him and, and said, we've got a problem, we've run out of wine. That's why Jesus said, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But now the shadow of the cross is looming before him. His hour is come, and he is going to the cross. In John chapter 14, just a a few chapters on from this, Jesus has his disciples together in the upper room. He's washed their feet. Judas Iscariot has left. He's gone out to betray him. And Jesus starts to talk to his disciples about a place that he is going to prepare for them. And while he is telling them about a place he was going to prepare for them, we, the human race, were preparing a place for him. Outside the city gate, at a place called Calvary. And while he was speaking to his own about heaven, And all that is theirs, if only they would trust in him. On the back streets of Jerusalem, plans are being made to take Jesus and to nail him to a cross and to crucify him there. 
for us. And after they had done all of that to crucify him, it was no surprise to the Lord Jesus. He knew what was coming. He knew every, every sin that he would bear. He knew every, every blow that he would take, every curse that he would hear. He knew it all. And yet he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He was glorified when he died for you and me. He was glorified when he came out of the grave. Mercy and pardon and forgiveness are found in Jesus at the cross. And it's there at Calvary that we most fully, God most fully revealed what kind of God he is. It says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, a really familiar verse. It says, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And there we learn something of the holiness of God. God didn't spare the angels when they sinned. The scriptures tell tell us he drove them out of heaven. He didn't spare Adam and Eve when they sinned. He judged them and drove them out of the garden. He didn't spare the great cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely, if there was ever a time when God would overlook sin and not punish it, it would have been when that sin was being accounted to his own son on the cross. But he did not spare his own son. And from these verses, we, le- we learn three things that I believe we can apply to our lives. Three things that should encourage us and challenge us. These are the three things. Jesus' death and resurrection will bring us life. Jesus' death and resurrection will bring glory to God's name. And Jesus' death and resurrection will defeat the evil one. In verse 24, Jesus states a great principle using the analogy of a grain of wheat. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, I'm not much of a gardener. In fact, I'm not a gardener at all. I think I've told you before, I'm a constant sense sense of amusement to my French neighbor, who is a very good gardener. But I know we've got gardeners in the room here, and uh, I'm not going to pretend to know a lot about this. But I do know this that in the grain, we see something of the great mystery of life. The, the, the grain of wheat falls to the ground and it dies, and then it produces the blade, and then it produces the ear, and then comes the harvest. And so the, the, the grain of wheat must die in order to produce the fruit. And in the same way, he, Jesus, died so that we might live. He gave his life so that we might have life. He is the one who died for our sins, the sins of the world. And through his death, he would provide a way for many to be saved, the great harvest to come. You see, God gave his son as a substitute. And this would have been so applicable, these words, to the people as they were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. He was the Passover lamb. Right at the beginning of the book, John the Baptist points to him and he says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was the one who died for the sins of the world. And, and, and there we see something of, of, of God that, that either, either we let Christ pay for our sins or we pay the penalty ourselves. There we see not only the righteousness of God, but also the love of God. He is our substitute. 
And God took your sin and my sin and he accounted it to the Son and he punished him instead of you and me so that we might go free and have life. What an hour that is. It's the watershed of two eternities, isn't it? At Calvary, in that hour, we have life and death. We have heaven and hell, God and man, forgiveness and judgment, holiness and sin, and you and me. And the human race is divided. On one side, we have those who have trusted Jesus and said, yes, you did this for me. And on the other side, we have those who have not yet done so. And that's what determines, isn't it? It's not about rich or poor. The big decision is this. What have you done with Christ? You see, the hour is come. And in that hour, God placed on him the sin of us all. Did you know that? Do you know that your sins have been dealt with in the past? You can stand before God forgiven. And so the invitation goes out to all those who will come and say, I am the one you were talking about. I am the sinner you came to save. If I was to go for a parachute jump, which sounds like a really awesome thing to do, actually, I don't know if any of you have done it. I haven't. But it's not enough to have that parachute on your back, is it? As you jump out of that plane from five, ten thousand, whatever feet you jump out of, it's all very well as you're plunging towards the earth, sort of, ah, oh, I've got a parachute on my back. That parachute is completely useless to you until you pull that ripcord and make it effective. Do you know what? It's the same with the cross. And, and what Jesus has done. I had two friends growing up, Mark and Nick, and they, they came to our youth group and I was witnessing to them. And I would say to them, do you believe in Jesus? And they would say, yes. And I'd say to them, do you believe Jesus died on the cross? And they would say, yes. And I'd say to them, do you believe Jesus rose again? Yeah, we believe all that. But that's, it was just information to them. They hadn't taken it and applied it to their heart. And it wasn't until a day we were at a Nicky Cruz concert. This is probably early 80s now. And... And they heard the testimony of this man who'd, who'd come to Jesus, come to know Jesus. And it was on that day that they applied what Christ had done to their lives. That was a good hour. And so we need to apply what Jesus has done. And so we can get life so wrong, can't we? We can get carried away with the things such as our careers, our self-image, pleasure, lifestyle, possessions. Legitimate things, but we get caught up with the physical things around us and we fail to realize that the soul is more important than the body this is what jesus said when in verse 25 he says these words look at verse 25 there it says the man who loves his life will lose it he's referring to the physical life see some people go through life they live it up they drink they party they they think only of themselves and nothing about the consequences of their actions and what it does to others not caring about anyone else at all. And then the day will come when they will die and their life will be lost for all eternity. But then Jesus goes on to say this. He says in the same verse, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The word hate there is a verb which means to prefer one thing more than another. And Jesus is simply saying this. Do do you love me? more than your own interests. That's why in Philippians it says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
And to serve Jesus can mean that we forego all the things that this, has, that this world has to offer. But in so doing, we will keep our lives for eternal life. And so Christ wants that first love. He wants that first devotion in our lives. So as we continue through this passage as well, we see that uh, the cross is looming. Look at verse 27 and 28. It says there, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. It's difficult for us to know what it must have been like for Jesus to bear the sin of the world. If you watch the film The Passion there, we get something of the sense of the punishment that he bore for us. But there is a sense in that movie that we can focus more on the punishment that he bore for us rather than on the one who was actually being punished. Who was that? It was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. It was God himself. And he didn't only physically suffer at the hands of men. He suffered beyond that. He endured the wrath of God against our sins. It says in 2 Corinthians, it said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And his heart is troubled, but instead of praying, Lord, save me from this hour, he prays, Father, glorify your name. What a lesson for me there. I tend to complain when things start going wrong. I tend to complain at God when things start going wrong in my life. But the lesson here is the example of Christ who said, through these circumstances, however uncomfortable they be, they may be, Jesus' intention was to bring glory to God's name. I know that my life might be like that, that the things I go through in life might bring glory to God. What a challenge for us. Lastly, his death and resurrection, it'll defeat the evil one. Look at what it says in verse 31 and 32. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan thought that he'd won a mighty victory that day, but he hadn't. He'd lost. You see, if Jesus had gone to the cross, if Jesus had just gone back to heaven bypassing the cross, he never would have been able to deal with our sin issue. He knew he had to go and die. And so as the forces of evil celebrated his death, really, there was a mighty victory going on there because Satan is utterly defeated at Calgary. He thought he was going to succeed and win, but he didn't. He is utterly defeated. And the sentence on the devil has not yet been carried out, but his destiny has been sealed. He is a defeated enemy. And one day he will be finally judged and thrown into the fiery pit. And Jesus' death will draw all men to himself. That's what he says there. Those who believe will be saved. Those who don't will be lost. 
And so there is a challenge for us today to lift up the name of Jesus before men. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cry of victory. It's, it's in the cross that we find salvation. It's in the cross that Satan was defeated. Finally, Jesus pleads for them to, to believe while they still have the light because Jesus is coming again. Look at verses 35 and verse 36. There it says, Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. The king has come. That is in the past. The great hour when the Son of God was glorified, that the Son of Man was glorified, rather, that is in the past. But there is another hour coming, and this hour is in the future. It's called the hour or the day of his wrath. If you have a Bible, turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 17. Verses 15, it'll be on the screen behind. Thanks, Norm. It says this, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Do you know what? There's only one answer to that question. No one shall be able to stand. No one shall be able to stand. The Apostle John, when he wrote that book, Revelation there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses an interesting little phrase here. It's in verse 16 and it says this, the wrath of the Lamb. Strange, isn't it? When I think of lambs, and I'm from Wales, and there's like tons of sheep everywhere, okay? I do not think scary, wrathful animal, okay? I, I think cute, cuddly, okay? Wrath of the Lamb. I'm used to saying things like wrath of a lion, not wrath of the Lamb. Sometimes we say, beware the wrath of a patient man, don't we? And how, oh, how patient the Lord Jesus Christ has been. You think of the sins of the world, the atrocities that have been committed, the things that go on day by day, the wickedness of men's hearts, and how God patiently waits, for he is patient, not, any, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance the wrath of the Lamb. But one of these days, he is going to come again. One of these days, it's going to be the day of his wrath when at last he will have to come and bring justice to this world. There's one last passage I want to read to you. It's in Revelation chapter 19, and it's a bit of a paraphrase, verses 11 to 16, and it says this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations 
on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus rode in Jerusalem on the back of that young donkey, an animal of peace. And the whole purpose of his coming was to make peace between man and God. But the king is coming again. And I know there's crazies out there who are always trying to predict the day and this sign and that sign and he's coming tomorrow. And, and I mean, we've even invented a saying, haven't we, slower than the second coming. But don't be fooled. The king is coming again. And when he comes again, he will be riding on the back of a horse. He will come to judge the nations. And so the day of judgment, the day of the wrath of the Lamb is coming and everyone will stand and face Jesus. And you know what? I don't think it's going to be the angry face of Jesus we will see on that day. I think it's going to be the same face that wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. It's going to be the same face that wept as he rode into Jerusalem on that cult that day and wept for the coming fate of Jesus. It's going to be the same face of that lovely man who will finally send men away because they refused to believe and would not come. He has waited another day. Surely the slowness of the second coming speaks to the patient, merciful God who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to life. In John chapter 12, verse 36, it says, Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. God hasn't promised to save you tomorrow, but he's promised to save you today. For he says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is it. This is your golden opportunity. You may never have another chance. This could be God's final call to you. If you go on and read this passage a little bit further, it's rather scary. He, he turns around and says, despite these wonderful signs in this book, John chapter 12, despite these wonderful miracles that these people saw, there was people who refused to repent and believe and come. And it says there that God then steps in and hardens their heart further. Their opportunity has come and it's gone. Having given them all these signs, all these opportunities, all these opportunities to come and repent, they were unwilling to change. And God steps in and further hardens their hearts. But today is the day. Today is the day that you could come and find true life in the name and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to call the uh, worship team to come and, and uh, lead us in worship again. I think Brad's going to come up at the end and close out the service. But I'm just going to pray. I just ask you to pray with me. Lord, we just